Heavenly Father, we are grateful. I pray that you would make us even more so that you would speak to us and that we would get to hear these words under your sovereignty, that you are over this whole world, that you hold everything together, that everything coheres in Christ, that the weight of the world is on your shoulders, not ours. And so for the next uh, 30, 40 minutes of our service together, that we'd be able to just... uh, not think about our task list, not think about our Monday meetings, not think about the projects that are due, not think about the laundry that needs to get folded, not think about the meals that need to get planned, not think about the emails that need to get sent or the lawn that needs to get cut. All the other things that occupy us, good things, part of living in this world. But right now, we'd be able to set this time aside and just be fully present before you that through your word you might give us what we do not yet have or know, remind us of that which we have forgotten, and inspire us to walk in new ways to the glory of King Jesus. And above all the things that we pray, what we ask for most is that every single person in this room, regardless of how they came in, regardless of what they know, regardless of whether they or a follower of Christ or not, what we all need most is to leave this time more impressed, more confident in what Christ Jesus has done, and more full of hope and joy about what he says he's going to bring to completion. Holy Spirit, would you lift him high that our hearts might be drawn after him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. All right, we're going we're gonna to stand together for the reading of God's word. You might want to take a sip of water. This is a long text. As you stand, don't lock your knees. We don't want anyone falling over. But if you are able to stand, will you stand with me for the reading of God's word, his holy, wonderful, flawless, um, today challenging text for us? He, speaking of Jesus, said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet... Do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. (laughs) Has anyone ever used that one? (laughs) So the servant, you just know God's word is true, don't you? (laughs) So the servant came and reported these things to the master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out into the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. 
For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation, is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We are. We're looking at a ton of verses, and we're doing it for a reason, because this entire section really presents one big theme. And what we're going to do is we're going to hang kind of the summary of this around two verses. The first verse, verse 15, Jesus is at a party. He makes this statement about who you invite, and you'll be rewarded at the resurrection of the just. And someone there in verse 15 says this, when one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom. That's one of the ways the Bible talks about heaven. It talks about the new heavens, the new earth. It talks about the new creation that's coming. It compares it to a, to a feast. And this person sitting there says, the, the resurrection of the just, I want to be in on that. This is going to be amazing. But then Jesus goes into a parable. He goes into a story to say, are you sure that's really what you want? At this time, it was very common. You would send out two invitations to something like a feast. You'd send out one. could be weeks, could be months in advance, a way of doing a sort of RSVP. We do this often with wedding invitations. You'll say, you know, here's the date or save the date. You know, do you want the chicken or the, the steak? You always choose the steak. So, I, so like this invite, but then we typically just show up. But at this time, what would happen is that they would send out, when everything was actually ready for the guests to show up the day of, someone would go out and say, okay, everything is now ready. Because it at this time, I mean, it could be 12, it could be two, it could be four, it could be six. Time was a little more fluid. And so you had these two invitations. And by the time they go back out to the original people that said, yes, we want to be there, they're like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm kind of busy right now. And they come up with a series of excuses. We may say, we're really excited about Jesus. Man, we want to be in the kingdom. The question of this text is Dewey. Are we sure? And then he goes out and we see the generosity of God to bring more in. He goes to the highways and the byways and the back streets and he brings more and more and more people. And the question is, do we really want to be there? And that gets picked up then as we get down into verse 25, which is the other verse. Now, great crowds accompanied him. Jesus had become well known at this time. His, his power, the miracles he'd performed, his standing up to religious bullies, his grace, his wisdom, his insight. And so that attracted a crowd. But Jesus goes in and, and, and 
gives some of his sharpest words to this crowd that had shown up. What appeared to be a, a multitude of fans. And he says, are you sure you want to follow me? Do you actually know what you're signing up for? Do you know what it will cost? Do you know what it will take? We're going to look at the cost of discipleship today. What it looks like to respond to his grace and and how we live. But that's not how the passage starts. And so I don't want to start the sermon with the cost, but with the reward. With the, the return on investment for discipleship as you follow Christ. What is it that you can hope for? It's the very thing in this text. This beautiful picture of a feast. A feast as a metaphor for the new creation is wonderfully significant because in a feast, you do more than just provide food to sustain you. A feast is a place of joy, of, of celebration, of, of, of party, of, of overindulgence in all of the right ways. Discipleship is costly, but the picture of the reward here is supposed to be something so much grander that it makes the cost look like nothing compared to what you get. My... Um, I guess it would be my, I don't know if it's my kind of uncle, I guess. I said cousin the last one. I think it's sort of my uncle because it's the son of my kind of grandma. So are you tracking with me? Not really. But it's kind of my uncle cousin who's the son of my kind of adopted grandma. She was with my grandpa for like 40 years. They just never got married, but it was grandma self, okay? So my, my grandma grew up in China and they, were, they lived in Seattle. They were living in Seattle and they were throwing a giant wedding celebration for her son, Kelly. And so we go down to Lake Union. We go to this incredible Chinese restaurant and they'd rented out the entire top floor of this place, this gigantic banquet hall. And we walk in and the decorations were the most lavish I've ever seen at any wedding celebration. And there's tables everywhere. There, there was hundreds of people that were gathered in this place. Even like just the, the line you would walk through, the reception line, because half the people there were from, the, from Seattle. Half of them were in this little town outside Hong Kong. And so you had these different cultures coming together in this really cool way. And you come in, just the, the welcome line felt like royalty. It was just incredible. And then we go and we sit down at this table and the first uh, course begins. They bring out this gigantic platter of, of fish. And then after that was done, they bring out another platter of lobster. And then they bring out another platter of whole cooked crab. And then they bring out another platter of some other kind of fish. And there's, there's people standing everywhere it posts. Like nobody ever went a single minute without having their glass refilled, having new plates brought, whatever it was. And we're going, and then, then they brought out the, the duck course, and then the second duck course, and then the third duck course, and we're just feasting and eating. And this is an incredible room. that is, just, is It is hard to describe if you've never done something like this. I think we went through 15 rounds. 15 rounds of portion after portion after portion coming out of most of which I knew what it was, not all of it, but I ate all of it, and it was absolutely stunning. And then all of a sudden you hear music begin, and two Chinese dragons come into the room. And they begin to do this massive choreographed routine. And then you had a bunch of dancers that came in the room. And they're doing this huge, they're just doing this, this dance routine. And then they're singing. And there's dancing. And, and the, the bride and groom are, are treated like royalty in this place. I mean, it was absolutely stunning. And God is saying that is just a little tiny shadow of how splendid and wonderful and celebratory the world to come will actually be. This great feast 
I love how David Gooding says, he says, the metaphor of feasting as distinct from merely eating a meal assures us that no true potential appetite, desire, or longing given us by God will prove to have been a deception. But all will be granted their richest and most sublime fulfillment. It's saying it's going to be better than you think. And all the things you long for now that you may not get, or as we're going to look at, you may have to give up. You will get better when King Jesus returns. I want you to keep that reward loud as we look at the cost. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. How's that verse land on you? strange for our ears in our culture. Let me soften it a bit for how we hear it, but not soften what Christ was saying to that culture. The, to, to hate at this time became a Semitic idiom or an expression, a way of saying to love less. He wasn't saying to literally hate. There's so many passages of scripture that talk about not just honoring mom and dad and loving your neighbor, but also even loving your enemies. So Jesus was not saying to, to hate and to love. What he was saying is to love less. That's how Jesus' audience would have heard it. And what Jesus does, and this is important, is he actually starts, though, with the thing that was most central to that people, which was their family. In our culture, we're, we're, we hopefully care for our families, love our families, but we're much more individualistic. At this time, your clan, your tribe, your family was everything. It was your identity. It was your place of belonging. It was your place of protection. It was your place of, of value. It was your place of authority. And he's saying, it needs to not be first. Nothing gets to be first other than me. I'm first, not your spouse, not your parents, not your kids, not your careers, not your school, not your schedules, not your money, not your time, not your retirement, not your dreams. Jesus is saying, in light of how much you love me, it's going to look like you hate those things. He's saying, I'm your priority. That word priority is an interesting word. Uh, Greg McCown in his book, Essentialism, he makes what I think is a really tremendous insight. He says the word priority began to get used um, in English around about 1400 or so. And he said the word was always singular, priority. He said it meant the first thing, the first order thing, the most important thing. The word was singular for 500 years. It wasn't until the 1900s when we actually, the, the English word got invented, priorities. We began to pluralize it. We said, no, there can be multiple things that are first to us. And so we speak of like, here's my priorities in life. And then we have a laundry list of things. And one of his insights is this. It says, whenever you make multiple things the first thing, here's what happens. You don't have multiple first things. You have nothing. None of them are the priority because priority by definition means one thing. It means the first order thing. Jesus in using the word hate is saying, I am the priority. There is no other. One of the ways I think it's helpful to think about this is not in terms of a list. You know, we talk about priority lists. I think it's helpful to think in the design of our solar system. You think about the sun at the center of it with all of its weight. And we've used this so many times in our church because I think it's such a helpful way of thinking about all the various things that matter in your life. It's not saying nothing else matters. It's not saying nothing else is important. 
He's saying, but there's only one first. And so you have the sun at the center and its mass and its volume and its weight and its pull helps to put all the other things in our lives appropriately around it so that everything orbits well. So none of it crashes into itself or into other planets or spin off into the abyss. It's that there's a weightiness to the one at the center. And Jesus is saying, if you're going to come after me, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be my disciples, I got to be first. priority, but he's also saying I have to be your affection. I want to reorder your loves. The word hate is often used with the pairing of love. In the Bible, it says things like Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, or Jacob loved his wife Sarah, and it felt to Leah like she was hated. There's this pairing of relationships, and it's really seen, here's a reordering of your loves. Marriage is an imperfect, but I think a very good illustration of what Jesus is talking about in regards to following him. For this reason, a man shall leave his mother and his father, and he shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And at that time, when, when those words were written, you're talking to a culture that was agrarian. You didn't relocate 3,000 miles away. You didn't jump in a place. You, you actually stayed on the family property. It, really what it was, you might even stay in the same dwelling place. That leaving that it talks about is not a geographic leaving, leaving as much as an allegiance leaving. You're changing your allegiance. You're transferring your loyalties. You're saying there is a new family that's being created that is changing how I'm going to live. When my wife and I, when we got married, that's what happened. Love drove us to the altar, but the reality is, is that then drove us to all the decisions we make. We can't make independent decisions anymore. The things we decide, the dreams that we have, the agendas we set out involve now this allegiance to another. It's the same for disciples. You belong to somebody new. Your priority, not priorities, your priority is different. Here's something super common. I don't think this probably happens anymore, but in the 80s and 90s, if you went to summer camp, you went over to Furwood, which I went to Furwood when I was like 12 years old. I grew up in Seattle, so I still remember coming up here. Or you went to like a Young Life camp out at Malibu or something, and you came in, and you weren't a Christian, and you showed up, and you heard the goodness of Christ, his, his forgiveness for you, and you were convicted of your sin, and you said, I need that. You turned from your sin. You turned towards Christ. You prayed. You asked for forgiveness. You began to sing the songs. You began to say like, I want to study my Bible. Bible, you would go home, and one of the first things that often happened back in those decades is what you would do after becoming a new Christian is you would go find all your old Metallica CDs or tapes, and you would throw them all away. You'd clean out all the music. You would say, I can't listen to this anymore. I'm a Christian. And so you'd throw out all that music. You would like break up with a bunch of your friends and say, I'm a Christian now. I cannot be friends with you anymore. Then after a few years, you wised up, and you realized that Christians can listen to things other than Petra and Michael W. Smith and Carmen and Amy Grant. Amen? Yeah. Now, you shouldn't listen to everything. There's a lot of good stuff you can listen to. You're out thousands of dollars, throwing out all your old tapes, and you wish you had them back. But I do love the impulse of it. Because what, what it was saying is that, like, something's different now. Something has changed. If nothing is different from before you started following Jesus to when you started following him, you got to ask if he's your priority. Like the center of the solar system just changed. The orbits are going to change. Would you listen again to Jesus' words 
verse 26 and following, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciples. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Let me read you some other words of Christ from Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Which pairing of verses do you like more? Hate your dad. Some of you are like, deal. <laughs> that's, a, that's another sermon. Bear your cross. Or come who are weary and I'll give you rest. Which pairing feels more unsettling or more comforting? I know what my vote is. I imagine I can guess um, what yours is. But there's something really important I want us to see as we dive deeper into this text and this cost of discipleship. The image of a yoke, this wooden bar that would go over a trained ox and a new ox to teach them how to pull and the cross are actually symbols of the same thing. They're both pictures of discipleship. They're both different ways of expressing the same truth of saying, I'm going to learn to live for Jesus. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to put Jesus at the center of my life. I'm, I'm going I'm to architect my life around. I'm going to submit to Jesus, a life full of learning and sacrifice, of growing and suffering, of resting and of working. Your cross is the call to follow Jesus, whatever that looks like, whatever that costs. And the emphasis in this text, and it's important to see this, the emphasis in this text as opposed to the easy yoke of Christ is sometimes following Christ is hard. Sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it's costly. Sometimes it feels like a cross to follow Christ. When these words were spoken, this is helpful to hear is people that are now 2,000 years after Jesus went to a cross. When he spoke these words, he hadn't yet been crucified. This statement meant something to those people at that time because they knew what it was like to be crucified. They lived in the villages and the towns when Roman soldiers would come in and grab someone and say, you have been condemned to death. We are going to crucify you. And what they would do is take a big wooden beam and say, carry it put it on their shoulders and make them start to march as far as they wanted. And when they finally got to the spot where this person now condemned to die would be crucified, they would take the wooden beam off their back and they would take another vertical beam and they would nail them together and then they would take this person that had been carrying this heavy burden, going to a place they don't want to go, doing things they don't naturally want to do and they would either tie them to the tree, or they would nail them to the tree. Sometimes they would leave them clothed. Oftentimes they would strip them naked. And when we have an image of a cross, we oftentimes have an image that it's kind of lifted high off the ground. They're not wasting wood on criminals. It would typically be low to the ground, be slightly off the ground. And part of the reason was so that you could be mocked for the day or two days or three days that you hung there spit upon, taunted teeth. Now, as we get close to Good Friday, we'll talk more about this and what Christ endured is absolutely stunning that we might be his. But he's saying following Christ sometimes can feel like that. It can feel like getting mocked. It can feel like doing things you don't want to do. 
and walking paths that you don't naturally want to walk and enduring pain that you don't want to endure. The word bear can mean to lift, to carry. It also means to prepare to suffer, sometimes even to death. Now, in many parts of the world right now, this is literally lived out. People giving up their life to follow Jesus. For most of us, this isn't literal, but metaphorical. And this can look a million different ways, a million different things. The word bear is more literally translated bearing, keep bearing your cross. It's saying something very similar to what Jesus says a few chapters earlier in Luke when Jesus says this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And it's really helpful because what he's saying is it's not always just big grand things that are going to feel like cross-bearing. Sometimes it's going to feel like the everyday stuff that you just don't want to do or the everyday sacrifices, the everyday difficulties that you might face as you follow. It can be big things like this, like your kids or maybe your parents or your friends or your coworkers stiff-arming you cutting off relationship with you, mocking you, uninviting you to things, cutting you out of their lives for this reason. You are trying your very best to be true to the word of God in the midst of a culture that does not always love the word of God. That's a heavy burden. That is a heavy burden. It could be like going back again and 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 again, forgiving that person that has hurt you again and again and again. And the closer the relationship it is, sometimes the harder it is to do again and again and again because Christ Jesus has forgiven you. It's doing what you don't want to do. It's denying yourself, your flinch. It could be things like saying no to a new purchase so you can say yes to giving. It could be like going to bed, turning off, you know, the new episode of Ted Lasso so that you can wake up and, you know, maybe pray a little bit more, read your Bible. It could be not watching certain things because of what it does to your soul and how it commodifies others. It could, could, doesn't have to, it could look like you have to resign your job. Or you get fired because the policies of that place, you can no longer stand there in good conscience as someone says, Jesus is my priority. It could look like choosing not to date someone. You want to because you know it won't build you up in the faith. It could look like just being labeled a bigot or phobic or weak or stupid or gullible. One of my buddies who teaches science, he loves to ask me every time I see him, so do you still believe in fairy tales? Yeah, I don't care. Um, But it's kind of annoying to insult the one that gave his life that I want to build my life around, to cheapen him that way, but then to keep loving. Sometimes that's the cross bearing. It's easy to get angry, but to keep loving. Or when I worked construction, I did a lot of years of construction for a number of my uncles, and I'd be on different crews, and they, I got known as the Bible guy. They had a number of phrases for me. Bible guy was the nicest one. And so, um, man, they would just ride me all the time. 
they would, they would try to get me to participate in so much of their stuff. Things like driving by the strip club and stopping and going in from the job site. Come on, Rob. Come with us. Come on. No. You sure? No. Then they sit there for hours. They just sit in a parking lot for hours. It looks like a lot of different things. Maybe it just looks like choosing to obey because God says it. And everything in you says, I don't want to. I don't want to wear the cross. I don't want to walk to the spot. I don't want to be taken where I don't want to go. Now, and I will say that Christianity is not an overly dour. I mean, we're looking for it. He talks about the new creations like a feast and his commands are not burdensome. They help us live. They help our society flourish and grow. But there's a part in us that wants to resist it. And he's saying, if you're going to follow me, I'm going to get it all. I'm going to get it all. There's so many times where I've talked with new or, or people that are not yet Christians and asking questions about the faith as they're exploring it. And it also, almost always comes with a series of meetings and questions that are, that are something like this. Okay, I'm, I'm considering this, but what does Jesus believe about this topic? Or what does the Bible say about this topic? And it's typically around something in our culture or some moral perspective, some ideology. And they, they're curious and they want to know because they're like, I don't know if I want to come to faith if I have to change this thing that I say I believe in. And at some point, they're all important questions and we walk through them. But at some point in the relationship, I just say, listen, that's not the biggest question. That's not the right question. At the end of the day, you got to ask, is Jesus who he said he is? Because if he is who he said he is, then he is Lord. And he's Lord, not just of the questions you're asking right now, but of every single question you might ever ask in your entire life. All of it gets brought underneath his lordship. Your sexuality, your money, your time, your dreams, your desires, your gifts, your body, all of it. All of it. Are you sure you want to follow him? And this is Jesus' words to a crowd of people. Are you sure? Remember what you get. Remember what you get. Keep it really loud. And remember, he's trying to grow you. He's the one that came to give life and to give it to abundance. And he's saying, the way you get it sometimes is through an easy yoke and sometimes it feels like a cross. As Brett McCracken says, Christian discipleship is not consumer friendly. And then we get down to verse 33. You have reordered loves. You, it might feel like cross-bearing. And then we have verse 33. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. If you get no other verse out of this text, get that. That's the catch-all verse. It says, whatever it looks like. Whatever it takes. Clyde Snodgrass in his book, Stories with Intense Sense, like this. Counting the cost of discipleship, it's difficult since none of us on coming to faith has or can have any idea of the future or what sacrifices commitment to Christ will involve. He said, you just don't know. You can kind of know, but you just don't know. To say Jesus is Lord, though, does not mean Jesus is Lord unless. Faith in Christ worth the name by necessity means discipleship with all its consequences. We are given over to another who shapes our lives. I learned a new word recently. I have teenagers, and so I try to stay up on teen terminology, and so I learned a new word recently. The word is situationship. Have you heard this word? So I didn't know what a situationship was, so I did some investigating. So this is a word related to like, like are you dating someone? Do you like someone? Like, where's this, where's this thing going? It's like, oh, hey, are those people dating? No, dad, they're in a situationship. So I don't know what a situationship is, but as best as I can tell, and I probably spent more time 
studying what this word meant than this text this week because it was so confusing to me. But a situationship lives in this ambiguous space between friendship and actual commitment. Okay? There's a dating expert who says it like this. A situationship is a romantic connection that in most cases serves a short-term need in one or both partners, but may or may not evolve into something more stable or meaningful. Another dating expert says it like this. It's like you're playing house by pretending you're in a relationship, but with no real consistency, dependency, or reliability. It's a relationship of convenience. You're basically saying, I'll do this for now until something better comes along. Jesus, make no mistake, is not interested in a situationship with you. <laughs> Might I be so bold to say that? He want a situationship. He wants to do a detail. We are going to define the relationship. We're not going on a break. We're not checking out other people. We're not, like, he is saying, I'm in or I'm out. Let me put this slide up on the screen. Take some of what Snodgrass says and just tweak it a little bit. Jesus is Lord. Not Jesus is Lord until. That's what he's saying. Oh, he wants us to come. And you see the invitation. It went out to everybody. It went out to those who would never be invited. It went out not just to the city. It went out to the highways. It went to the farthest expanse to say, oh, you got to get in on this. The feast is going to be so good. It's going to satisfy every longing you've ever had. And who else would you want to be Lord? When you think about the one that bore his cross, when you think about the one that invites with generosity, you think of the one that was winsome and kind and gracious and honest and treats people with dignity and sees those that aren't seen. He's saying, oh, but you gotta bow your knee. You want me a savior, I gotta be Lord. You know, until, until he didn't answer the prayer we really wanted answered. Until the Bible and culture go in opposite directions on whatever topic you wanna pick. until he asked me to walk that path that I just don't know I want to walk. When Katie and I got married, and this is true when anyone gets married, the most important part is the vows. Because you get into it and you, you kind of know maybe what you're going to experience, but you don't know. Like that's always the most amusing thing about doing premarital counseling is you spend like, you know, 10 sessions talking to a couple about how hard it's going to be. And they're like, oh, we know, but we just love each other so much. And then they call you on the honeymoon to say, this is terrible. What did we do? I was like, I told you. You make the vows because you don't know what's coming. And sometimes the vows are the only thing you have to go back to. I'm going to love you in sickness and health and good times and bad and richer and poor and the decades that follow, it brings a lot of that. In following Christ, oh my goodness, there are highs. There is rejoicing. There is joy. There is comfort. There's his presence. Oh, he comes alive. He grows us. He matures us. He helps us in so many practical ways. And he fulfills us in so many. I mean, that is so true. And there's some really hard moments. And Jesus is saying, am I going to be Lord or Lord until? Seems like a good moment to pause. Maybe make a really important clarification. Maybe nuance this a little bit. Maybe you're already feeling crushed by this text, but it's very easy if we don't take this moment and nuance this a bit to understand how this text is not meant to crush us or used to crush others, and yet it obviously can. Larry Osborne in his book, Accidental Pharisees, which I think is a phenomenal book. If you ever read it, eat the meat, spit the bones, um, 
but really helpful book. He says it like this. Passionate faith can have a dark side, a really dark side. And the problem is not spiritual zeal. That's what Jesus is talking about. Be about me. That's a good thing. We're all called to be zealous for the Lord. The problem is unaligned spiritual passion, a zeal for the Lord that fails to line up with the totality of Scripture. It's saying this is the only passage. This is the only symbol. I already talked about another symbol of discipleship, the yoke, but this is the only text we look at. Here's why I say this. There is Christ's call to deny yourself, to pick up your cross, to be ready to renounce everything, and there's also the rest of the Bible that says what that's going to look like is struggling and stumbling and just being confused on, I don't know what the right thing to do is here. I don't know if I should keep working in this place or not. I don't know if I'm supposed to speak up or not. I don't know if I'm supposed to attend that event or not. I don't know what I'm, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this thing or not. I'm not so, I don't know if I'm supposed to accommodate the culture or rebuke the culture. I don't know. The Bible's full of that confusion because we are confused people in a complex world. The Bible gives pictures of what it looks like to be weary and get tired and to know we have limits, to know that we, we, we need naps, to know that we, we failed, to know, to know that we sin. See, this text isn't saying, follow me and you'll never sin. And if you sin, then you can't follow me. That's not what he says. See, alongside a text like this, we also have this, this promise and this hope. And I hope you hear this as a deep encouragement to you. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. I mean, even when I put down the beam on the side of the road because I don't want to walk anymore and I sit there for two months kind of debating and then I pick it up again I'm not condemned for that no if Christ is your savior if Christ is your king the debt's been canceled there's no condemnation left all the wrath has been taken all of life now is just learning to walk in the footsteps of who he is learning how to wrestle learning how to pray learning how to surrender your will and it's not instantaneous because the Bible gives us other verses like this we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another the implication is this we haven't gotten there yet we're in process one day we will be like him for we shall see him as he is but today is not that day we're still works in progress. Here's why I say this. If we only read these verses, we are likely at some point, perhaps even during this sermon, to be crushed by the demands of this text. And that's not what it was about. Christ came to liberate, to give freedom, to call you to a new way of being and a new life so that you could end up at the feast. And on the day when he returns, not be so busy with yourselves that you don't want to go anymore. After the sermon, the first song we're going to sing is about as direct an application of this passage as I can think of. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. And I think if we're honest, as we go through the verses, I think we can say, yes, I do some of that. I want to do more of that. And my encouragement to you is to use it as that song is actually intended to be used is as a prayer to help our hearts align with the call of Christ. To come and say, where you're affirmed, be affirmed. Where you're challenged, be challenged. But the whole thing is saying, God, I want to want that. I want, like, I want to want to want to want to say, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. I want to not hold things back or I want to want, I really want to hold these things back, but I'm not sure, but would you change my heart? And we actually hear it in the lyrics. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in endless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of the life. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful to thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my silver and my gold. Not a mite will I withhold. 
take my intellect and use every power as you choose. And then you really hear it in this next line. This is a prayer for God to just override our resistance. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart. It is thine own. And it shall be thy royal throne. Set up residence in me. And let the rest of me orbit around you. I'll end with this. What happens though before we ever pray that prayer? Take my life and let it be consecrated. We remember that Christ consecrated himself to the cross for us. What comes before the call to like pick up your cross? Well, in this text, it's a feast. And I want us to hold those together because it would be so easy to conflate the salvation of Christ where he does all of it with our effort. See, our effort, our doing, our cross-bearing, our sacrifice, our renouncing everything, it adds nothing to our salvation. It does nothing. It adds nothing to the accomplishment of Christ. He is the full Savior, period, stop. Christianity is I am accepted because Christ obeyed, stop. And out of that, we respond. Out of that, we respond. I was reminded of this recently. Um, one of my buddies, the second year in a row, he's done this. He invited me and four other guys. So there were six of us. And he did this last year. He did it again this year. He says, I love you guys. I want to bless you. I want to take you to my favorite sport, which is hockey. So he took us to a cracking game. And then he said, I'm going to take you to my favorite steak place. And so we went to a steak place after. So we're, we go to this cracking game. Great seed. Super fun. Have a hoot together. Hoot, hoot. I don't know. It wasn't a situation ship, really. Um, <laughs> that's, when you stumble over, just bring it back in. Um, we go to the game, and then we go over to the steak place, and we're sitting on Lake Union. And, you know, the menus come out, and he says, hey, you guys, you remember the rules, right? I want you to order everything you want. No holds barred. Anything you want. And we did. I first ordered a $500 gift card to take with me. <laughs> <laughs> I got to try it, so I haven't done it yet, but... You know, you're going through the lists of food and drinks, and it's just, I mean, it was just a lavish meal. All these appetizers come out. You know, he's like, oh, you want to get the Wagyu steak sampler? Do it. It's amazing. You should try it. And if you don't like it, then just get something else. Get whatever you want. It's incredible. Here's what I didn't do when all the food came out. I didn't say, hey, wait, wait, wait. I want to contribute something too. Here, I made this half an egg salad sandwich. It's been in my pocket for a few days. <laughs> But enjoy, friends. That wouldn't have made the feast better. It would have made it worse. And when the bill came, it was like a phone book. So long. It's an incredible bill. I didn't reach in my pocket and say, hey, I got 87 cents. Can I help cover part of the tip? It would have dishonored the host. See, our cross-bearing, our doing, our activity, all those things, they honor God, but not when they bring him to the place of salvation. He's not asking you to do this to be saved. He's not asking you to, to crockpot the grand feast that's coming. He's not, this isn't a potluck. He's done it all. He's done it all. So as we go from this place, we do so in light of the cross he bore perfectly for us, which frees us to learn how to bear one now, knowing that we're perfectly forgiven, we're perfectly welcome, we're perfectly his all because he took the big cross, freeing us now to learn how to take our smaller ones. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a, what a text with sharp edges, but so much grace. 
And your, your call to us, your commands to us, they're not burdensome. Your word tells us they are for our flourishing and for the good of those around us and for your glory. At the end of the day, it sounds harsh, but I, to say you have to be first, but if we're honest, it just makes sense. You are the king after all. You are the creator. You are God Almighty. Jesus, you took the wrath that we deserved. You went on the true cross that we actually deserved. And in light of that, how could we not pick up the smaller ones that we might stay tethered to you? Oh, the people that heard these words originally, they had an idea of a cross, but not the idea we have. Help us to hear the invitation, the command, the summons to pick up our crosses with so much more dignity and so much more beauty and so much more profundity because it's the same place that our king went in order to bow his life to you, Father, and to save us. And so we go to our smaller crosses to bow to you, Father, and to be a joy to those around us. Where we get tired, where we stumble, where we fall, Help us know it's okay. Because Christ set his gaze on the cross and he would not be deterred from it. He took the cross of our condemnation. He took the cross of our judgment. He took the cross of justice. That we might then receive the feast of mercy and the bread of grace. Oh, how the evil one wants to do so many tricks with a text like this. Would you keep him far from us? We pray for a sincere and a pure devotion to our great King Jesus. And grace upon grace upon grace as we learn what that means. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're gonna respond as we do every single week as a church by receiving communion together. Um, My invitation to you is to not miss the connection with this text. You're gonna come with empty hands And you're going to come to a table with juice and with bread or with wine and with bread representing the body and blood of Christ. And what you're doing is you are taking a a sample, just a small reminder of the great feast that King Jesus is is preparing for us. You're not adding anything to it. You're coming with empty hands. You're not coming with promises and pledges. You can come with conviction. You don't have to make the penance. You don't have to try to promise the type of Christian you'll be this week. I think right now is the time to remember the type of king Christ is and let that drive us and melt us and strengthen us and embolden us to go out into this world, whatever we face. There's only one barrier to receiving communion in this church and it's faith in Christ. Anyone here, you saw it in the text. There's an invitation that goes to everyone. Oh, that you would come. Just turn from your sin. Turn from building your life, from being your own king, from being your own priority. And turn to Christ and then go to this table saying, oh, thank you for your forgiveness and I look forward to the feast. We're gonna sing a number of songs together. You can go to the table quickly, you can go slowly. Just at some point go in the grace that is in Christ Jesus.